Hi everyone, just a quick message to let you know that this episode was recorded before the COVID pandemic. As we're all learning and growing, some views may have shifted in the meantime, and this episode doesn't necessarily reflect current events. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, this is For Art's Sake, a podcast that gives voice to museum people. Here we discover their untold stories, for art's sake and for your sake. Today we are talking about the ways that immersive experiences can help bring culture to life. Our guest today is Tim Pell, head of the Research and Development Studio at Historic Royal Palaces. Tim's work covers a whole load of different areas and he delivers really creative and challenging experiences for visitors to some of the UK's best-loved heritage sites. Tim has found ways to bring heritage and culture to new audiences in a whole load of new ways, from things like performance art and theatre to VR and audio journeys. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. So, your work is really interesting, but we'd love to learn more about you and who you are. So, tell us what led you to where you are today. Yeah, well, it was a series of my... (laughs) chance encounters probably. I've been at Historical Palaces now for over 10 years actually and have done a series of jobs that didn't exist before I did them. So I, I, I first came to do essentially a piece of research into whether social media is something Historical Palaces should be looking into. Right. The answer was yes and, um, <laughs> and from there it's kind of grown. So the first few years were looking at online content and social media and those kind of digital at the time innovations and then the latter kind of five years have been on-site stuff. So how we can bring the kind of magic of technology and digital into real-life experiences that, that people experience within the palaces or or beyond. What's your background sort of in terms of your, you know, what did you study? What were your career aspirations? What was that moment that you decided, I kind of want to hang out in palaces? I studied a very strange combination of chemistry and philosophy at university. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yes. And... This hasn't been a kind of long thought out path, I have to say. But after I graduated, I, I actually worked for many years in a training organization that did welfare to work training for long-term unemployed people and refugees and asylum seekers. But for that period, I knew I wanted to work in the kind of cultural museum world, but it's very hard to get into. I used to do a lot of writing for various papers and stuff on a voluntary basis, reviewing arts and culture museums and got my first job in the industry working for something called Culture Northwest, which they were called the Regional Cultural Consortiums, and they no longer exist. They were a, a quango that is now culled. And then from there, I got the job at Historic Royal Palaces. So there we are. Work that out in reverse. <laughs> Great. So we found something that we'd like to ask you about. So on your Twitter account, it says, digital live grave robbery. What does this mean? Yeah, well, that, that's been up there for quite a while now, actually. And Well, it came about from my early work on social media, actually. So one of the first things I did that got attention was to put Henry VIII on Twitter. Fairly commonplace thing to do now, but it was was quite quite new at the time. When was that? 2008. And I think what, what was exciting is not only the idea of putting a kind of historic personality on social media, yeah. but also playing with the capabilities of the new format, so the kind of real-timeness. So what we did is we, we matched a period of time of three months from his brother dying to him being crowned in real time. And so social media allowed you to do that for the first time because obviously it's in the way that people share their lives in real time, you were able to share his history in real time. So that was the that was the digital grave robbery. And I, I suppose really all of the work we do is about making people think that they're present in the past. Mm-hmm. So if you flip that round, it's, it's digital grave robbery. There we are. 
mystery uncovered. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about what historic royal palaces are for anyone who somehow is unfamiliar with, you know, the organisation? Is that the right term to, to describe historic royal palaces? Yes, we're an independent charity and we look after six sites, which are the Tower of London, Hampton Court Palace, Kensington Palace, Kew Palace, Banqueting House on Whitehall, and our newest, which is Hillsborough Castle in in Northern Ireland. So we are a charity that is licensed by the DCMS to run these six buildings. They're all kind of ex-royal palaces, right. but are no longer occupied by the royal household, and they're run as visitor attractions. But we receive no funding from either the state or the crown, so all of our income is, is self-generated through okay. through ticket sales, fundraising, functions and events, retail. So we have a quite a, an independence that is, is relatively rare within the sector. So that is kind of the first group I've heard of that is, is funded in that way. Usually there's some little bit of, of endowment coming from somewhere, and I think a lot of people probably see historic royal palaces and think, oh, the money all comes from, you know, comes from the Queen or wherever, so... Thanks for clearing that one up a little bit. Probably should clarify that we do for specific projects and things like that. We do receive oh, okay. we receive funding, but there's no kind of core core funding right. on a, on an ongoing basis. We're lucky enough to have the Tower of London, which is, you know, one one yeah. I think is one in every twelve visitors to London comes to the Tower of London. Wow. So that's I mean, it's really a good, good place to build on. Uh, what are the challenges of such funding? Actually, are there any risks? I suppose it makes us more susceptible to to the market. To fluctuations in, if, if you track the, the visitor figures over the last maybe 20 years of something like the Tower of London, you see how it's very, very influenced by geopolitical events. So things like the London bombings and SARS and bird flu and the economic downturn all have a really, a really big impact. So more closely linked to the economy because of that, because of the, the, the need to, to generate our funds through ticket sales than maybe other kind of funding models. And tell us and, and the listeners, what is it that you do in a bit more detail than what, what we just described in the introduction? Yeah, this is a role that you said didn't really exist until you stepped into it. So what, what is that role? The R&D studio and the, the head of the R&D studio is, is about 18 months old now. And the, the thinking behind it was that if, if you look at the, the projects that have had the biggest impact for us over the last number of years. So we're thinking things like the poppies at the Tower of London mm. and the flames, some smaller scale, but kind of big impact projects like the, the Lost Palace that I produced and Long Live Queen James and things like this. They didn't come about through any traditional development method. Mm. It wasn't the organization commissioning. It wasn't, you know, us knowing what we should do and then doing it. So the R&D studio really is, is to embed the capacity for us to work in new ways within the organization. We operate really by running a series of residencies with artists and creatives who are invited to do really quite speculative idea generation stuff. So they're artists we're interested in or, they're, or they work in areas that we're interested in. But rather than just commissioning them to do something, we actually invite them in to spend time in the palaces, to spend time with our experts and to see where those kind of uh, stimulus plus their creativity take them. And what we find is that, that that freedom to generate the ideas in a site-specific way creates visitor experiences and those, those kind of creative ideas that we never would have come up with ourselves mm -hmm. and that really have a, a power to connect to the audiences. Is this something unique to historic royal palaces or do you know any other organizations who, who do that? I mean, it's completely commonplace in theatre and, and oh, really? kind of, okay. you know, pure arts scene. So, well, you know, there's a whole whole branch of theatre called devised theatre, which is which is precisely like this. What, what one of the key benefits I think from working in this way is it's a little bit of matchmaking and chemistry testing because 
the interiors, heritage environments are not easy to work in. You know, they're the most protected mm -hmm. buildings in, in the country. And also we have a lot of stakeholders, a lot of factors that need to be considered. Artists are not always the easiest to work with, you know. So by allowing people in for this, for these R&D residencies, we just make sure, and it's absolutely two ways, because we don't want to be working with an artist who doesn't work with us, and it, it goes both ways. So it's that ability to, to kind of, to really work in a, in a powerful way together. And I think often people commit to projects that you know quite quickly in are not going to produce the results you want <laughs> them to. But if you've gone along a normal con commissioning project management structure, then you're stuck with it, aren't you? So maybe R&D is an early get-out clause. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of touched on a couple of the things that you've produced, a couple of things that you've worked on in this role. What are some of the experiences that you've created that you're really, really proud of to give the listeners a little flavour of what it is that you do? Yeah, I think the project I've done that's best known is, is called The Lost Palace. And it was the response to a particular challenge, which is banqueting house that we look after is the only remaining building mm. of a 1,500-room palace called Whitehall Palace that burnt down 300 years ago. And within the spaces of that palace, some of the kind of really key moments in British history happened. It's where Henry VIII met Anne Boleyn and married her. It's where Guy Fawkes was interrogated, where Shakespeare performed for the first time, King Lear and many of those plays. But no one knows because it's hidden now under, under government, under Downing Street, the Ministry of Defence. And you have millions of, literally millions of tourists walking up and down there every year with no idea of the, the history beneath their feet. So the challenge was how do we give people experiences of that history where it happened in a palace that no longer exists? And we... Again, rather than pretending that we knew how to do this ourselves, we ran an open call competition with the creative industries. We funded five prototypes and then the two most successful prototypes, and we, and we brought real audiences in to test those, collaborated to make the end visitor experience. So it was a mixture of site-specific audio that was recorded using binaural sound, which is, is a kind of technology that when you listen back to the recordings, it feels like they are happening spatially around mm. you. They're moving and you can sense the kind of direction and proximity of the sound, as well as architectural installations in the street that kind of were references to the bits of architecture that were no longer there and you had to interact. It was a gesture recognition device where you had to sword fight. and you had to, So it was, a, it was a slightly insane mixture of lots of different approaches and technologies that took people around the modern streets and allowed them to kind of listen in and participate in these bits of history. Sounds absolutely incredible. Yeah. And when was that? It ran for two summers, actually, so 2016 and, and 2017. And are you going to repeat this experience? So we never intended that version to run on a permanent basis. That was a kind of an experimental mm -hmm. project that ran for, for two two summers. Banqueting House will be having a restoration project and, and the, the visitor experience will be kind of greatly improved and there will be a version of the Lost Palace, something like that. As to when that will be, I'm afraid well, I don't know. Yeah. Can I mention one other project? You actually, can. Which is a, yeah, which is a sim similar project, something called Long Live Queen James, which it was in 2017 and it was the anniversary of the partial decriminalization of, of um, homosexual acts in the UK and... Like many people, we wanted to program around that. And we took the, the story of James I and his male favourites, mm. who were his lovers, as the, the inspiration. And I think it's a really good example of, of R&D because the thing that ended up being presented to the visitors was not even a twinkle in our eye at the start of this process. So it started with a conversation with the playwright Mark Ravenhill. Mark Ravenhill was really excited by the story, 
but suggested that we brought in the performance artist activist Scotty to direct. Scotty brought in a, a number of performers from the kind of queer arts cabaret scene. And it became this, this kind of, we called it a Jacobean drag show in Polari that brought in a lot of vernacular of kind of contemporary queer performance, like lip sync and all, all of those kind of things, but was absolutely telling the stories of those, of, of, the, of the Jacobean court. And what was so surprising about that was that some of the audience feedback we, we had was that people said, I now know what it would have been like to be in James's court, which when we often talk about questions of authenticity and, it, you know, it brought in lots of references to very, very live contemporary issues. But what it did is create the type of experience that was authentic. So James's court was flamboyant. It was licentious. It was scandalous. In order to make people experience that in the way that they would have back then, you have to recast that. That's what those combinations of artists were able to do for this project. Yeah, because if you do it in the way that it would perhaps be more historically accurate, in big inverted commas, it won't be sensational and scandalous and you know outrageous because we all kind of have this preconceived notion of what that period of time was like, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really straightforwardly, the language is a massive barrier. Yeah. You know? Speaking <laughs> of the language, you said it was in Polari. Can you yes. elaborate for the listeners a little bit on what that is and, and how that was received? Yes, Polari it was the kind of secret pre, pre-decriminalization of, of homosexual acts. It was a kind of secret gay language, basically. Mm. I, I think it came from gypsy slang originally, oh, okay. actually, from Ro- Roma slang. And lots of the words we know now are from, a lot of them have kind of entered contemporary vernacular, like, I'm not going to be able to remember a single example now <laughs> I'm put on the, on the spot. But, but what was really interesting was that by casting it as, as Polari, that was a kind of 1950s gay cultural reference. The Jacobean James and his favourites was a, you know, 17th century yeah. one. And using contemporary performance vernaculars, it was like these three different periods of... Oh. Uh, LGBT plus history all in all in one. Fantastic. Just to kind of change direction a little bit, obviously visitor experience is a big part of your work. In contrast to, you know, a lot of other heritage sites and museums and galleries, HRP doesn't really have any collections per se, does it? How does that work? And and who owns the objects that are in those palaces? Yeah, I think the palaces and, and a lot of heritage sites are a fundamentally different type of experience from a from a museum or an mm. art gallery where yes the the walls are richly lined with with paintings there are kind of this furniture there's objects in the room but they weren't brought there they were the you know the paintings were painted for that bit of wall of the people who lived in this room or and, you know there's so there's a there's a complete site specificity to mm. it i mean obviously things change over time and da 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 but the, as a general principle the spaces themselves were also, they were never ordinary spaces. A lot of the time people ask, where's the furniture? <laughs> but there wasn't any furniture because they were full of people. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. when, when Henry VIII's court was in residence at Hampton Court, there were 600 people, you know. They all wanted to get close to the king. They all wanted the king's ear to mm-hmm. get favours, blah, blah, blah. So the rooms didn't have seats. They were full of people, <laughs> you know. And in addition, the, the kind of monarchs of, of each age have worked with the greatest artists and musicians and, and architects. So they're places of pure spectacle that need to be populated by people in order to make sense. Mm. So we always describe it as somewhere along the spectrum between a museum and a theatre. These are performance spaces, really. So 
it's not somewhere you can't just clear the walls and put new stuff up because everything in that in that room is is part of the story and part of the kind of essence of that of that place. So since your focus is not on collections, it's on spaces, and from what I understand, it's on people as well. So what are the challenges of working with spaces and not objects? I mean, I must say that we obviously have world-leading conservators oh, yes. looking after the collections and, and all, yeah. all of this stuff. A lot of the art on the walls is is owned by the Royal Collection Trust, for example. So there is there is a lot of collections, but we kind of our primary function is the management of the building and conservation of the buildings themselves rather than those those collections. I'll be in deep trouble if I don't <laughs> <laughs> if I don't mention that. The problem with spaces is that something has to happen in them, right? Mm. And I think it's uncontroversial to say that our approach is kind of radically founded in stories. In, in the idea of the kind of the interplay between people and spaces and politics and society. So for us, it's about, which is an approach which is inherently theatrical, actually. You know, this is this this is a set, these are characters and these are scripts. And, these, you know, the only difference is that these things really happened. The nature of the spaces we have, palaces, monarchs, in a, in a time when, when power was held by those people, mean that the events that have happened in those rooms have influence directly in many cases the society we we live in today really profoundly shaped it so not only is there the kind of in like kind of drama of the events that were happening there is also the contemporary parallel of of those events and the kind of the the, you know the strands of, of time and influence between those two things that i think when we do what we do best the past invites visitors to reflect on the present in a, in a different way with a different insight i think i think the first requirement for that is a human connection to those people in the past you know people's brains were different you know they were they believed in magic they believed in in superstition all they're fundamentally different brains we can't just we can't just put our own brains back there and, and have it's like almost that point about the authenticity of experience so it's really important to find that common humanity you know the highest status people in society the kings and queens people are, i think are interested in the two ends of the spectrum of their lives this is like the pure pomp and ceremony, the incredible splendor and spectacle mm. and coronation mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. And then the other end, which is where do they go to the toilet? Where do they sleep? Oh, yeah. Where do they have sex? Where do, you know, and there's no middle. Always <laughs> like had with, these questions. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the visitor experience side of things, obviously intensely uh, important to your role and to the, the historic royal palaces as a whole. What's the process that goes into actually creating those unique experiences? How do you, you know, something like Long Live Queen James, how do you get a bunch of people in the room and say, right, let's sit down and, and talk about this? How does that come together? What's the process there? Well, more and more we're trying to start it with a, with a period of R&D, really. Okay. So inviting in people from a range of creative industries to solve those problems with mm-hmm. us rather than us thinking that we can we can do it ourselves. But really everything starts with a challenge, doesn't it, with a problem or a question. It's like what can we what can we do here, or how should we mark that, or, or or something like that. And it's really artists are really really good at answering questions. So I think that's the the, the kind of initial R and D really should be a kind of you know us us and the artist and the mm-hmm. organisation working together to answer the answer the question that has been raised by this historic anniversary, or opening up a new part of the palace, or responding to a new emerging technology or a new emerging audience group or, or whatever the question is. And then I think it's probably worth explaining what we mean by R&D, I think. It's a term that maybe means something different in lots of different industries. So where, where was ordinarily you would you would start a project with a kind of speculative design 
stage, then a detailed design stage, and then implementation stage. That's the kind of standard design process. This is before that. So this is something that informs the basic brief of, of mm -hmm. the project as a whole. And whereas previously organizations would have sat around with their own people and decided, you know, we're going to do this thing, and then they ask other people how should we do it. This is a step before that where we are actually asking a much bigger question is what could we do? And we're asking artists and creatives to work with us to answer that question. That then becomes the brief that is a normal kind of project delivery. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the question I always ask myself is, is how will we know if this new approach is worthwhile? And there have just been a, a, a number of times. One is long live Queen James with, with where that ended up via committing to a different process. Never would have come up with that ourselves. Similarly, in The Lost Palace, when we had some prototype pitches that came back from Chomko and Rosia, the, the insurrection designers who ended up designing the whole project, so their idea was an, a wooden heart-like object that beat mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. using haptics, so you felt a heartbeat. And if you turned the heart around, it beat strongest in one direction. <laughs> if you walked along that direction, it took you on the routes that Charles I walked to his execution. Whoa. And then when you arrived at the place of the execution, it stopped beating. And I think just hands down, we all went, that's a profoundly new way to do this that mm. we never would have come up with ourselves. So that open call, that invitation to the creative industries to, to respond to a challenge, mm. just, just ended up producing something that was totally unique. Yeah. So they were responsible for both idea and implementation. They were in this case, yeah. This case, I mean, yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be like that. Yeah. There are some kind of creatives we work with who aren't massively interested in the end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they like the idea generation stage. They like the kind of concept development. It's a very different set of skills, actually. And interestingly, actually, that's that's a real challenge for for organizations, maybe, to, to be able to manage the the different phases of, the, of those projects. Because you have mm -hmm. to go, you're essentially moving from imagination to practicality and very different. So tell us, how many people uh, take part in new events and who are those people? I think there's two different ways of, of looking at it. Some of, some of the work we do is more immersive techniques. Mm. Some of it is part of the core visitor offer. So, for example, at Hampton Court Palace, we've done a lot of spatial sound and um, touch-sensitive projection mapping stuff. But that's that's part of the visit for every visitor. And there's a whole range, really, of, of different kind of visitor numbers. The Lost Palace was was just over, over summers and off the top of my head, around 10,000 people experienced that, which is, you know, which are small numbers compared to the, the 5 million we welcome every year over, over all of our sites. The, the projects we're working on, the kind of large-scale immersive experience at the Tower of London, hopefully opening autumn 2020, will be a much bigger scale. We're working with the commercial partner for that, and, and that would, the capacity of that will be kind of over its lifespan met many hundreds of thousands of visitors. So there's a, there's a huge, huge range of scales. One of the things about Long Live Queen James I loved was that it was able to go on a kind of mini tour. So mm. we actually went to Latitude mm. last year. So that was a, a really interesting way of taking it to a, an audience who weren't even expecting it. <laughs> but I think even with those, you know, you say the sort of smaller numbers, the sort of ten thousands, I think that makes the experience in some cases more memorable and more intangibly valuable to know that you are part of a group who got this unique, immersive experience that so many other people won't have had that is so 
we're using the word unique a lot, but so unique in terms of an experience you can have at a heritage site. I think that's fantastic, that it's not just how can we get hundreds of thousands of people in, how can we get millions of people in, that there are sort of, there is consideration for those those smaller visitor numbers as well. I think that's really, really important. It's important to, to consider things in the whole range and spectrum of, of, of visitors and mm. sites and palaces. You know, we wouldn't be able to do a deep, immersive, technology-based experience in the Tower of London in the summer, for example. Yeah. There's too many people there. But we can use it to, to kind of pull visitors to less well-visited spaces at less well-visited times of year, for example. But the, there is a kind of a realisation, and, a, and a, we need to be honest, that the visitor flow through them is, is very low compared to more traditional. If you're thinking of something like virtual reality, for example, the production costs are so high versus the number of people that can mm. experience that and the cost of the equipment and hardware. And if we really are committed to those to those new forms of entertainment, then we, we have to look at different operating models and different business models. And commercial partnerships are absolutely key to that, we, we found, um, certainly for, for the Vaults project. So you mentioned at the beginning that Historic Royal Palaces is a charity and that you're partially self-funded. Is that correct? Yes. yes. So can you tell us approximate costs of creating one of the experiences, just to put things into perspective? Yes. The Lost Palace costs £250,000. The one in the vaults will be a lot more than that. Obviously, with all of this innovative technology and these innovative ideas, Intellectual property is going to be a question which comes up sooner or later, and I'm guessing there's some dilemmas around that. What you share, what you don't share, how you protect those ideas. Have you come across any troubles of ensuring that your IP is protected or that you can share it where you want to with other sites? It's a huge, huge issue. Yeah, Absolutely, it really is. And as we are moving into different kind of areas of entertainment, working with different type of partners, that the, the expectations in, in copyright and ownership are challenging because they're the ones we're not used to. If we're asking artists in to work with us to develop ideas at the start of projects, which is the, you know, the essence of an R&D residency, then we have to be able to relax the organization default state position, which is we own all of everything. You know, that's, that's just not how artists work. The reason you've invited them in is because you love their previous work. They're bringing all of that unique kind of IP into the project. So we've had to work with our kind of contracts team to develop a set of principles that are mutually exclusive. So there, there, it's, I mean, in technical terms, it's, it's the kind of granting of mutual licenses to IP and with exclusivities and time bounds and all the rest of it. But I think we've just about kind of settled on, on a kind of position that allows artists to be able to work with us. But you have to get that right at the start. Because yeah. if it's not set up right at the start, then it's very, very difficult to reclaim that at the end. And it becomes it becomes really fractious and can actually kind of sour the relationships quite, quite severely. <laughs> there is an educational element in the experiences you create. So how do you find the balance between education and entertainment, if such a balance exists? Yes. We have brilliant experts who, who run all of our education programs and, and, and learning programs and outreach programs. So I, I don't want to speak on, on their behalf. I think if, if you're talking about a, a core visitor who, who's not kind of on an explicitly learning or educational-based visit, I think if you, if you went back 30 years or, or whatever, institutions, museums, whatever, would have regarded themselves as the kind of gatekeepers of knowledge and the gatekeepers of, you know, stuff 
the the digital age has completely blown that. Those kind of the the authority of ownership of information is gone. You know, people don't come to a place to find that historical fact. They go to Wikipedia, or <laughs> or worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so why do they still come to these places? And I and I think it's this is the real shift to cultural institutions being part of the experience economy. They come for a, a load of different reasons, which are social, very often, but they're looking for experiences that are kind of memorable, that are meaningful, that are kind of that have some kind of resonance with them. And it's it's a it's a real shift to to being able to kind of well, what we're allowing and encouraging and enabling is for people to, cr- to create their own meaning in our spaces, actually, rather than meaning and, and truth or whatever being something that the the institution broadcasts out. If we are acknowledging that we're part of a the experience economy, we need to be aware of who our competitors now mm-hmm. are. So if we're saying we're theatrical spaces, if we're gamified space, you know, if you're going to make a kind of digital game for kids, it's got to be as good as Angry oh, yeah. Birds. It's yeah, got yeah, to be as good compete. as the rest yes. of the stuff that I, like, I used to be a teacher and that the kids are obsessed with video games. The first thing they ask you is, oh, so what games do you play? And then you take them to the digital experience and it's good and I'm blown away with it by it as an educator but it doesn't look quite as good as whatever they're playing on their Xbox or their PlayStation, and then there's that big disconnect almost immediately. Yeah. What are we doing here? Because the idea that we're going to impress people through the use of like devices is is nonsense, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be heads-up experience. You know, the, the exactly. device has got to be a way to, to deepen the engagement with the place itself. And you also, I think, one of the biggest challenges is that you need to bring the audiences, and you are competing today with Netflix. <laughs> Which is... Um, How do we be more Game of Thrones? Yeah, yes. Is the question. Yeah. Have a better ending. <laughs> <laughs> so, a couple of questions we ask everybody. If you could magically transport yourself back through time, talk to your younger self, give yourself some advice earlier on in your career, what advice would you want to hear? Well, basically, just grasp every possible opportunity that comes your way. You know, there are very few linear paths through this stuff. It's not like being a doctor or a, or a lawyer where there's an absolute clear progression path or whatever. You know, you are going to be employed because of the totality of your experiences and your, you know, your abilities kind of bring in experiences from lots of different areas and industries and all the rest of it. So, so grasp all of that and, and just be open to the fact that we're not actually nearly as in control as we think we are of, of what happens next to us. You know, we can only respond to opportunities that come to us. So I think you can put yourself in a position where you are open to opportunities, mm. but you can't actually make them happen, <laughs> unfortunately. So, and also network, just speak to people, ask questions, go and see, put yourself in, you know, go out of your comfort zone, see stuff that you would never normally see and speak to people who've made it that's you know that would be my suggestion another question we ask absolutely everyone if you had unlimited funding what museum or a cultural space would you build i don't think i'd build one cool Great. okay buildings are you know are are wonderful but also challenge mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they are they present and create their own set of barriers for for lots of people i think If you speak to lots of people who work in cultural organizations, there is a vast majority who are kind of liberal and think what they're doing is is progressive and, you know, for for society's good and, 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 and that it's all about change and impact and all of those kind of things. But actually, for the people we're hoping to engage, these places are really seen as institutions, you know. Mm-hmm. If you look at, like... When you're learning French at school and you, it was like, what's, what are the buildings in a town? It was like the police station, the town hall, the museum, right? So I think the building 
makes you institutional. So, okay. and I and I I don't know if you'd build a building again. I think you'd spend the money on taking what you wanted and taking what you wanted to do to people, wow. rather than expecting them to come to you. I really like that. If there's one thing that you want people to go away from this interview thinking about, what is it? I would say put at the center of everything you do, put how you want people to feel. Because when you've got an emotional reaction from people and emotional engagement, it's so much easier to, to kind of engage them in all the other ways we want to do. But it's that visceral emotional connection that starts. That's the most powerful start point to, to everything else. So really start to design stuff for how you want people to feel at that moment. Fantastic. Thank you. Just one last thing. Where can people find you? It's a bit creepy. No. <laughs> <laughs> We hope not. Yeah, I'm on a Twitter as TCP1980, and like I don't blog or anything like that. Okay. I'm afraid. So, but it's better to see you in person. In other words, Twitter's probably best. To be Twitter's honest, probably the one I do most. Where okay. might people find out more about historic rural palaces? Well, the website, the web address is hrp.org.uk, and if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, there's a little tab for the R and D studio there. Great, Tim. Thank you so much. Thank you. Speaking to you. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of For Art's Sake. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, find us online at forartsake.co.uk, on Twitter at sake underscore arts, or on Instagram at forartsake.uk.